Welcome to the FNRAD Snowboarding Podcast. I'm Eric Trollson. Wow, this is a great way to climb mountains and come down, you know. For our reception, our Vulcan buddies brought acid. I was dropping in and snaking people and causing shit. I remember calling on the radio and I'm like, Brushy, where are you? You know, Greg would do the trick. He was kind of like the Tony Hawk of snowboarding. I mean, people just really gravitated to the backcountry. I liked Craig, but he didn't really care for me too much because I was a little shithead. I'm on vacation this week and I'm down in La Paz, Mexico. The sound you hear behind me is the ocean. This week's guest, Sean Sullivan, is a photographer whose iconic photos define snowboarding, mostly through the 90s. It's an interesting conversation about the dynamics of photographers. So, yeah, I started shooting snowboarding probably, well, I actually rode for the first time around 1988. I rode up at Mountain High or or a snow summit, and I rode um, a Sim Switchblade. Um, I had like rented this camper board from a friend of mine, but I ended up buying my own board, the one with the yellow and the pink bindings, you yep. know, with those weird bracket clips. Yep. But I f- shot my first snowboard photo at June Mountain. It must have been the spring of 88. I went up there on a spring break vacation with a girlfriend. And at the time I was shooting for Thrasher, they're shooting skate photos. But I was seeing potential already in snowboarding. I saw that, you know, there was obviously more money in it, and there was, it was, a, you know, a fast-growing thing. And it, you know, just had so much potential to grow that the writing was kind of on the wall. The guys at Thrasher weren't too happy with me. They had worked pretty hard to, like, sort of get me, you know, shooting how they wanted me to shoot. And the guys, I, they, the guys that they wanted me to be working with, they didn't have anybody in Southern California so I was filling a huge void with the magazine. And so when I did switch over in the fall of 89 to snowboarding and I moved to Lake Tahoe, you know, they were bummed. They were, you know, and they basically gave me the boot, you know, in no uncertain terms. And, you know, I kind of deserved it. You know, after they had worked really hard to sort of get me on there, I was just like, you know, I moved on. And they didn't want me up in Tahoe. There was no, no skateboarding in Tahoe, you know. Right. And it was all right. Some funny things happened after that, too. Like in, in, the, in the year or two after I left... You know, I'd see those guys out, too. Like, this one time I saw Mofo, who's who's a long time and very dear friend of mine now. He was the guy who recruited me at Thrasher straight out of high school. And after I had left, I went back there one year, and I was shooting at this Vans competition. He was up on the ramp, and, you know, all the heavy photographers were up there. Grant Britton and O and Bryce Knights and Dave Swift. Mofo had me removed from the ramp. Anyway, I, I, but you guys have made good. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And Mofo, you know, is just such an awesome guy. And and you know, I, I owe I owe a huge debt of gratitude to him for being the one who sort of made me realize early on my potential, you know, for being a photographer and for shooting good photos. He made me believe in myself by re- recruiting me and bringing me on oh. board for that. And that's a, what allowed me to sort of take off. I mean, that confidence is such an important part of any success. He gave that to me, and that's like a gift. That's a, That was a priceless gift, and I'll always be indebted to him for that. What kind of equipment were you shooting with at that time? There was a very industry-standard setup for shooting skateboarding, and that was a Nikon FM2 or an FE2, a 16mm 2.8 fisheye, and a Sunpack side-mount flash was the standard rig. So one of my first cameras I got was that setup. You know, had the little motor drive on the bottom of it, and... Um, 
you'd go to a contest and there'd be like 10 guys shooting and nine of them would have that same setup. Yeah. It was the one you needed. How you many know? frames per second do you get out of I mean, that? three and a half, four. That's it. But I wow. used to actually have this thing. This guy custom made these battery packs that held four more AA batteries. And it had these wires on the outside. And it was like this little bonus plastic battery holder. And so when you put that thing on there, it would it would crank it up to like six or seven. Oh, that's awesome! But it would it would blow out the camera a lot. Of, you know, it was so fast that it would wear on the on the mechanics inside and totally screw the thing up. They weren't Nikon authorized. Let's put it that way. Right, you know? right, right. But they they made that camera so much more powerful, especially for shooting snowboarding later. And then over the years, I sort of evolved. You know, I eventually got the Nikon F four, and then I think I might have. I don't know if I ever got an F five. And then I moved into digital, you know, after years, so... Most people nowadays wouldn't have any idea, like, how much of a process it was to just get a shot. Oh, it was insane. You know, it it wasn't just the shooting either. It was the waiting, the processing, and, like, having to wait for the film to come back and hope that you had done everything right. And then sometimes you'd open up a box of slides and like you'd be like oh i forgot to change something and like they're all clear they're all you know white i mean i've had trips where i've gone on where people have paid a lot of money and it's like you know you get back and none of your photos turn out you know you look like a total heel so you learn real fast to like double triple quad check everything you know anyway yeah shooting film was you, you couldn't see it the same day like you can now you get the instant gratification yeah there's none of that. You shot the photo. You hope you got it. You take it home. You develop the film. You pray that there's a couple in there. Sometimes there would be. Sometimes there wouldn't, you know? Yeah, the dynamics change so much. Like, you, I know that shot from videos. The photographer showing the rider, like, look what we just got. Yeah, like, yeah. That didn't happen then. No, no. And there's then it lot. started with video cameras, you know? When you mm-hmm. had guys rolling video, mm-hmm. Super 8. You know, as as, the, as time evolved, the, the first digital cameras, obviously, to come around were video, not stills. Like, Dogger used to shoot a lot of video. You know, Mac Dog, Mike yeah. McIntyre. But he would always be like, hey, you guys can't see the footage because if you rewind the footage, it could create this little glitch in the shot and you didn't want to screw the shot up. So he wouldn't let anybody look at the shots generally. Yeah. So even though you could, he basically wouldn't, um, which I thought was always interesting. Everybody is cultivating their image online, mm-hmm. editing the photos, editing certain photos out, getting mm-hmm. rid of images you don't like. The amount of control that one has over their, their public persona these days is is immense. Where did you stand on the photos of something that was a bail? Like some people have said, you know what, as long as I landed one of them in the session i'm all right with a photo being printed from one of my bales you know it's it would it's really easy to say i would never publish a bale okay that's a very like black and white statement but when when you're on the ground shooting all season long with a bunch of different people and everybody's trying all kinds of crazy stuff sometimes it's the fog of war so to speak that's not to say that any bail is justified to be printed if it, if the trick was never stuck i think it more falls back on what is the definition of sticking it you know did he drag a hand did he butt check did he just outright you know ragdoll you know where's where's the line and i think that line moves based on a number of parameters how big was the air how bio was the spin who's the rider does he usually stick it you know there's guys out there who just never stuck it they would just huck themselves off stuff and just land on their head you know those guys know you're not going to run the photo no matter how many how sick it looks in the air you know they're just bailing every time i can't say that every photo i've ever had published was a perfect stick 
But I can say this, that over the course of my photography career, 30 years, I've worked tirelessly to make sure that the images that do get in represent a evolution in the sport that includes the trick being made. People like Rob Gracie and Jimmy Scott were early pioneers in this, like, hey, let's do this mutually beneficial symbiotic relationship. I'll take photos of you. You do your tricks. Yeah. I'll make you famous. You help me make money. Yeah. Who were your guys? I had my staple guys that I shot with a lot. But a lot of that had to do with the movie companies that I was working with more and the writers that they shot with. I did 13 years with Snowboarder Mag. And for a good portion of that time, I was shooting with the guys at Standard Films. Their standard crew was Noah, Damien, Roach. There's two things about Damien that, that I did want to mention. And, and A, as I mentioned before, Damien was the first snowboarder to change the definition of a professional snowboarder. He took it away from having to compete in these events that just were, some of them were just so ridiculous. You know, you had to race, you had to ride the pipe, you had to do the moguls. Damien was the one who took the idea of a professional snowboarder out of the competitive realm and turned it into, he created the, the film pro, a professional snowboarder that could make a living, make a great living actually, traveling the world, filming, and then putting out movies. You see guys like Travis Rice, you see guys, all these dudes who are making these movies these days, even in this really tough environment when most of the people are still getting their content offline, there are a few guys that are out there still making movies, and those guys, the effort that they're making is a direct result of what Damien was the first to do, and that was to totally shift the paradigm away from competition and make it about media, make it about impressions, about coverage, and turning that into dollars rather than competition results and you're just sort of another number. And I think that was a fundamental shift in how business was done in snowboarding that that bell still rings loudly today. You know, he's larger than life and when you see him you think he's going to be this pompous ass and he's such a down-to-earth, chill dude who, yeah, he knows he's good. I mean, you can always compare yourself to what other people are doing but he'll be the last one to tell you that. And um, he's always been like that. He's always been, you know friendly to everybody you know people that come up to him anywhere i've never seen him turn somebody away for an autograph or a handshake or anything like that he'll drop what he's doing for his fans and you know there's a lot of people who could learn a lot of valuable lessons from people like that because you don't see as much of that anymore later on in my career i started working more with the ride crew and some other teams and stuff like that i started to get away from the filming thing all the time and, and a lot of that had to do with people were moving deeper into the backcountry using snowmobiles and i i always opted out of owning a snowmobile but a snowmobile became a big deal and if you didn't have one you weren't going to be able to follow the crew out there and so i was forced to evolve in a different direction because i didn't have a snowmobile and i had no desire to get one there might have been one moment where i sort of toyed with the idea i was all oh, do i really have to do this <laughs> not that i don't love snowmobiles to all you snowmobiles out there yeah. you guys are crazy i love what you do but i i can tell you this i hate i hate getting that thing stuck pulling it out of the snow the thing weighs a million pounds it's a valuable tool for the backcountry there's no doubt about it but it just wasn't my cup of tea but anyway i started moving on away from filming with the filmers 
you know, I think the involvement of the filmers in, in relation to photography is, is an important thing that needs to be kind of discussed. I started shooting with like Dale Rayberg, Rankwit, Pat A. These ride guys became sort of my steady crew. And then towards the end of when I was shooting, I, I just, I got to the point where I had this really solid crew of guys that I like to shoot with. Pat Bridges will, will be the first one to attest to this, but I got to the point where I just didn't want to shoot with anybody else. I was like, I want to take Ian, Pat, and Schlosser. That's who's going with me. You know, they got sick of seeing photos of those three guys all season long. And I think that had, a, you know, a lot to do with why me and the magazine eventually parted ways, among other things, was because I was being difficult to deal with when it came to trying to shoot with these other crews. I felt the magazine was kind of heading in this weird direction, too. And I wanted these guys to be focused on because they were ripping powder and doing steeps and they were all about the mountains. You know, they weren't building jumps and sliding dumpy rails and doing all the stuff that I think is stupid. And so, so yeah, eventually my crew consisted of, of a few core guys and I really liked shooting with them. And then, you know, I just sort of lost interest after a while and I ended up going back to school and stuff like that. So. Yeah. What are the main jobs that snowboard photographers had at the time? There were guys who would have to cover events Yes. They'd be sent out all over the place just covering events. There'd be guys that were just freelance who would send in photos of whoever they were around. Yeah. People who would crew up with companies, right? Like, so Burton would have staff photographers that would go out with all their riders. And that became the industry standard for the companies to start hiring, you know, in-house photographers. But during the time I worked at Snowboarder, it was sort of, you know, a mutual back scratch situation where companies would buy ads in the magazine and pay to have their riders go on trips. You know, we would do these trips with these guys and then we'd come back with all these photos. The magazine would end up, you know, helping the company get some of the photos for a good price and they ended up running this. You know, there was this sort of like mutually beneficial relationship going on. But eventually that all changed as print media started to kind of fade out. The relationships and the dynamics between the magazines and the company sort of began to evolve. And yeah, so regarding the filmers, you know, when I first started shooting snowboarding in magazines, the magazine photographers were the guys who were out there putting the trips together, doing these big stories but once these movies started coming about, TB2 was sort of the beginning of this. Even though there was a few music movies before that, eventually when Standard Film started really doing their thing, they really caused the game to change. And this isn't a critique on Mike or the Standard guys. It's just the nature of the business. When we were out shooting, the photographer was the one setting up the shots. You know, I liked to get up close and personal with a big cliff. I like to be underneath guys. I like to be in tight with the wide angle. When you're filming, the film shot has to be the entire trick. It has to be the stick. Yeah, and a lot of yeah. times it's shot from farther back. You're not doing a lot of stuff on the wide angles. You know, different photographers or different filmmakers have different ideals for what they want, and a lot of them didn't like to have a filmer in the, in the back of the shot. Mac Dog was always an exception to that. He didn't really mind. In fact, he liked having a photographer in the shot because he felt it added sort of a realistic legitimacy to the whole thing. But guys like Mike and Jerry and these sort of like 16-millimeter film guys, they all felt that it was about catching... The pristine moment as if there wasn't a filmer there you know there's two fundamentally different approaches there but point of all this being that as the snowboard movie began to become a bigger money maker the photographers started getting sort of pushed to the side a little bit the filming was the priority the photography became secondary even to the magazines it's actually sort of a conflict of interest in, in a way because the magazine started sponsoring these movies like Transworld had their movie, Snowboarder had their movie, you know, they might even have two movies. 
and all the big film companies had a sponsor for their film. So it came, it started becoming about the filmer having priority over the photographer. So rather than me being able to be up underneath the cliff, I started having to back out and shoot over the filmer or next to the filmer from like the barbecue angle on the next ridge over. It wasn't him having to adapt to me. It became me having to adapt to him. You know, and I've been reflecting on this recently. That became a fundamental change that altered the way in which the photographers collected their content for the magazine. And in turn, it changed very fundamentally the way that the consumers were viewing the imagery and seeing what was happening on the mountain. Yes, you're still going to have your days where you're out there without a filmer and you're able to get under the cliff. But generally speaking, the very best shots are coming from the guys that are out there rolling film and rolling video. And for those shots that gets in the mag, you have to be shooting with a big lens from farther back so you don't get tangled up in the shot. Um, another point to mention in that regard, too, is that these filmers, because they did become kind of like the top dogs, they started to be able to lay down the law, so to speak, in regards to... The behavior of the photographers like if you didn't play along you weren't going to be invited to come out that was a tough pill to swallow for a lot of photographers including myself being told that i couldn't go up close i couldn't get the shot i wanted that was tough and then i think that that shift in how the images were shot translated directly into a shift in how the magazine looked like when you open up the magazine, you're starting to see less of these high-impact, up-close, beautiful images, and you're seeing more of these far-off lines. As that started to evolve, I think the magazines, and, and I say it's a conflict of interest, but the magazines in some ways sort of ate their young on this. They would acquiesce to these filmers. Like if we, if we would complain to the magazine, they'd say, well, the filming is important, and you know we're sponsoring this movie, and we also don't want you to piss these guys off because we want you to be able to go on these shoots. And for us, it's like, if you piss this guy off and you don't get to go on the shoot, then they're going to invite somebody else. Maybe not from another magazine, but they're going to invite one of your, you know, your peers, one of your fellow senior guys, and they're going to go to Chamonix and you're going to be stuck at Mount High. If you stop allowing your photographers to get a broad range of shots, then your magazine starts looking like the inside of a movie and why wouldn't you just watch the movie? For sure. One way to equate it, and I bet if you were to line up the bell curves, yeah. it would probably be right in sync. As the movies started to generate bigger sales, become a bigger deal, and their budget started to go up, the quality of the magazine content started to go down, in my opinion. Yes, you still had your insane shots. You had Sedway going to Alaska, shooting from the helicopter. Epic. You know, but as far as just your day-to-day -day being out there shooting with the filmer, it just made it a lot more difficult. One of the other things that I saw change back then was once we started having to follow the rule of the filmers, the next thing that happened was we started seeing multiple photographers on these trips. Like, we would go out to the backcountry, and there would be Shem Roos from Transworld, and then me from Snowboarder. And I'd be like, who's this other photographer? Why is this guy here? Oh, there's enough going on out there for both you guys to shoot. And I'm like, no. You know, F that. I'm not sharing this with anybody, but I had no choice. But that was an extremely frustrating turn of events for me, and there was a time where I was the only photographer out there, and that's, the, that's how it was going to be. I was not going to let anyone else get similar shots to me. Eventually, I just had to once again acquiesce to the demands of, of 
the industry and just say, fine, whatever, I'll just get better shots than him. It was just the filmers wanting more coverage for their movie, and they felt that if they had more still guys, and I would always throw it out to them, well, hey, can I bring another filmer along? You know, yeah, and yeah, they'd be yeah, like, well, yeah. hell no. And I'd be like, well, what's the difference? You know, I mean, you guys are selling me out. You know, why can't I sell you out? And the reason being is because they were calling the shots now and not mm -hmm. me. In the movies, you felt like you were right there alone. Yeah. Whereas the magazines, you were flipping through pages of ads and then you'd get an editorial shot and then you'd... And I guess the magic was gone for me at that point, right? Yeah, I mean, I definitely had, you know... At, at some point, discovered there was no Easter Bunny. From then on, I was sort of you know, a little bit sort of disillusioned by the industry and by the way that the mags operated. And I saw a loss of interest in the thing that made it so special to me. And that was, I loved being out in the mountains in pristine powder, cold, blue sky, out there at dawn, hiking in the dark, setting up for the shot and getting this like wild, beautiful backcountry mother nature to me, that was why it was so special. That's what drew me to that, you know? You know, when I started getting asked, not just by the magazine, I mean, the magazine was one of the last ones, by, by these companies and by everybody else to, like, go to the park, shoot a sequence, I want you to shoot it, like, 20 times till he gets it right. I'd just be like, that's when I started to lose interest, yeah. you know? And yeah. um, right around 2001, 2002, I left Snowboarder Magazine. This was also during the time of the digital switchover. I was actually seeing it happening both in music and in photography at the time. You know, we were all going from analog to digital. Mark Sullivan made a really interesting comment to me not long ago, and, and I found it shocking but so true, is that none of the senior photographers who worked at Snowboarder with me were able to successfully make the switch from film to digital. And when I say successful, what I mean by that is that we all left our senior photographer positions at Snowboarder. I was the first to go, and the other five fell in quick succession. It just wasn't quite there yet. I wasn't quite convinced that the technology had made enough progress to be able to substitute the film. But you got to realize that, you know, we're like in love with film, mm -hmm. you know, and it's mm -hmm. like nothing could take away my sacred, you know, exochrome, exactly. whatever. And it's like, now I'm like, I look back at my old slides and I'm like, God, these look horrible, you know? <laughs> I think a big part of that, too, was a ramping up of the digital workflow. You know, with the digital cameras, it's not just about the switch over in formats. It's about everything that goes with it. Editing the digital shots in Lightroom and Photoshop and using these these various forms of software to filter the photos and create this imagery that you couldn't really do that back then with film unless you were willing to spend hours in the dark room slaving over chemicals and even then the results were going to be iffy. Um, so did you kind of feel like it was a bit of a cheat at that time? Was I still it? do. Yeah. I still do think it's a bit of a cheat but it's one of those things that you have to just accept and I think that there is something to be said for the for that process, though. It's like it might seem like a cheat. The average guy with his camera or girl with their little camera phone can, like, take a, a neat photo, crop it, fix the colors, and then put some crazy darkroom filter on there. Yeah, that process used to take forever for a photographer. But on the other side of that, techniques have become so advanced now in the digital realm that there is methods that go well beyond that, beyond this whole notion of 
shooting and adding filters on it that a lot of people don't realize. Like, it's really easy to, to just do that on Instagram, but a lot of these photographers out there are using extremely advanced techniques in Lightroom. They're using composited images. You know, I put up a post on Facebook not, not too long ago about, you know, I'm trying to look for a, a flash unit, and some guy got on there and he said, just take a picture of the cliff and then take a picture of the guy jumping it with the two stops more open and then just composite the two together. I had never even thought about that, but it was so true. That's just one example of how you can manipulate the digital sensor. You know, one of the things that's interesting is like the iPhone just started offering raw capabilities. So you can shoot raw format on your iPhone, which is a huge step forward because now you're not dealing with any of that. It's just the digital information and you can go in and edit, edit it yourself without any of that extraneous, you know, like um, sort of default editing going on. There's really no purpose for a, a Joe photographer to use the raw format. I mean, yeah. it's just, you know, I'll be honest with you, and I'm sure all you other photographers think I'm crazy for saying this, but I don't even use raw. I, I, I think raw is a total pain in the ass. I, I would prefer to just shoot a JPEG or shoot a TIFF, get in there and manipulate it a little bit. And when I say manipulate, I'm not talking about, like, pushing airs higher in the air or any of that <laughs> stuff, so don't be sending me emails in the coming weeks telling me that I shouldn't be manipulating my images because that's not what I mean I never do that you know I, I took a sort of a hiatus for a while and I was producing music and I went to college for audio engineering up at the University of Washington and so for a few years I totally divested myself from snowboarding I was over it I was like man it's magazine sucks this sport is stupid i'm like i'm out of here you know but slowly i started to kind of fall back in love with it years later i wasn't so jaded i don't think anyone was ready to predict the demise of print in the manner that has it is the shocking manner that it has unfolded and i don't think there's any denying that the industry and the world in many ways has still yet to recover or found a proper substitute for print media Looking at news articles and magazine crap on your phone is just not practical. I mean, you're never going to be able to read a magazine article all trying to blow it up with your fingers and like scroll through it. It's just not going to work. Those days are gone and and you know if I go if I yeah. go on to Facebook in the morning and I scroll through and I see the same posts that I saw last night. Yeah, I only saw them for like 1.5 seconds, but it's already boring to me. You're I'm all done. seen it, yeah. seen yeah, it, like seen it, you know. Um, the manner and the speed in which we consume content these days is moving so fast and growing exponentially. So, I don't think there's any stopping it. So what do you do these days for snowboarding? Is there, like, will you go to, like, the retro worlds? Yeah, I went to the Sims, Sims thing. thing. Um, I'll do a couple trips each year. LBS, you go up to the Banks Lawn? Yeah, I'll probably go to that. I went last oh. year. It was good. Yeah, it's a good time. It's, um, Baker is, is not the same place that it once was, you know, obviously. But, um, you know, when the powder's good there, there's nowhere better in the world. You yeah. know, really. I mean, it's that sick of a, sick of a mountain, but... I think the Banks Slalom is always a good time. You get Terrier and the Hetzels of the world and the Jamie Lynns and the Gucci's and everybody else showing up. And there are, there are a few events left in the world where you actually get that kind of solid crew there. So um, I definitely think it's a, uh, a worthy yearly pilgrimage that every snowboarder should make at least once. Um, before we go, let me throw out a couple thank yous. Yeah, um, please do. Super grateful to Pat Bridges over at Snowboarder Mag. Guy's been a supporter of mine for years, even when him and I have butted heads a few times. He's just... He's always had my back, and uh, even just recently, he's just been such a, a good friend, and he's been so cool to me that I'm just grateful for 20 years going. I'm, I'm just grateful to uh, have him around and have him on my support staff. I'm, I'm, I appreciate him so much. 
March Sullivan and I have bumped heads so many times about the stupidest things, but he's always, you know, real and raw and telling the truth, and I just have the utmost respect for him, even if, you know, he might not think that because of some of the arguments we've gotten into. Uh, you know, he's a really special character. I, I believe he deserves a lot of the credit for the success of snowboarding, you know, in the 90s and the early 2000s. So, um, Mark Sullivan, wherever you are, big shout out to you. Doug Palladini was my uh, my publisher at Snowboarder. He's the one who recruited me over from Thrasher, you know, back in like 1989 or 1990 or whenever it was. And, uh, you know, he saw the, the potential in me and he gave me a shot. And even though I made some stupid ass mistakes back then, um, he always forgave me and gave me another shot. And um, him and Rob Campbell and some of the other guys down there at Snowboarder Mag, they've always been so cool to me. And uh, I'm just so grateful that they gave me this opportunity. I wouldn't be here where I was today without them. And so to you guys, I say thank you very much. Dope, dude. Much love to you all. What's yep. your website? Uh, yeah, you can find my work at sullyphotos.com. That's S-U-L-L-I. And then the word photos.com. I also just released a book of skate photography, which you can check out online by going to Barge at Will. That's the name of the book, Barge at Will. It features tons of photos from 1985 to 90 when I was shooting skateboarding full-time. Guys like Mark Gonzalez, Jason Lee, uh, a lot of the Huntington Beachheads, Mike Lorman, Skip Pernier, Jose Serta. Some of these guys never got their due, but man, they were so sick. So um, I'm really stoked to put this book out recently, and it's available on Amazon under the name Barge at Will. So if you get a chance, go check it out. Thanks, man. Um, Peace. Happen rad shoutouts this week to Sean Sullivan. Thanks for doing the interview, buddy. Myro, gentle. Thanks for having my back. And La Paz, Mexico. Thank you. The food down here is off the chain. Make sure you come back next week for another episode of the Effin' Rad Snowboarding Podcast, brought to you by BR Productions.